Welcome to the Dispatch Book Club, and I am so excited this month because we're switching topics. We started our new theme, and it is on what it means to be human. And our first book, Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rucker Bregman, and we have the author with us today. And I just, I mean, let's go through some of the things that have been said about Rucker Bregman. Um, He's been compared to AOC to Greta Thunberg, uh, maybe a radicalized Malcolm Gladwell, I read somewhere. Um, he's spoken everywhere from Davos to Tucker Carlson. And yet, I feel like all of that misses the message of Bregman until you read this book and even until you read it to the end. So, We're going to talk about his book, but we're also going to talk about what he's doing, what he's trying to do through the books, through the speeches, everything else. There's something larger than the book itself. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. Let's start with like, what made you write this book? You had already written a bestseller called Utopia for Realists, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which uh, actually also kind of gets to some of the heart of the Bregman, I think, philosophy that you're building. But a lot of, in Humankind, you say, in my first book, I thought this, I've changed my mind, which were parts of the book that I really enjoyed, was watching an author evolve and acknowledge mistakes and not try to fit his former square self into a new sort of rounded hole. So mm-hmm. how did you write Humankind? Why did, uh, how did that come about? So what I like to do in my work is to move beyond the old-fashioned divide between the political left and the political right. I think that's really holding us back. All these boring discussions about, are you a socialist? Are you a capitalist? Are you left-wing? Are you right-wing? You know, there's some really exciting ideas out there that just don't really fit that dichotomy, right? So Utopia Freelist, for example, my first book, um, was mainly about this idea of a guaranteed basic income which is in some ways a pretty right-wing idea. You know, the economist Milton Friedman was a big advocate of it. You know, let's just get rid of a whole lot of subsidies and bureaucrats and just give people money so that they can decide for themselves what they want to do with their lives. Uh, But it's also pretty left-wing in some ways, right? You could actually eradicate poverty. We're more than rich enough to do that. It would cost less than 1% of GDP. So why don't we do it? Um, And that's really those kind of ideas that I'm always looking for. And now with this book, Humankind, the main reason that I wanted to write it is that I started to notice a shift in science. So many scientists from so many different disciplines, anthropologists, archaeologists, sociologists, uh, psychologists, you name it, have been moving from a quite cynical view of human nature, of who we are as a species, to a much more hopeful view. Um, And I've been emphasizing that we are a cooperative species by nature. Now, um, the problem with many of these specialists is that they're super, super specialized, right? They know everything about their tiny little part of the picture. And they often don't notice what's going on in the field next to theirs. So what I wanted to do in this book is basically just to connect the dots and to show that something bigger is going on. A part of your book that just fascinated me and is I'm still thinking about is the challenge to the concept of meritocracy, that it is somehow mm-hmm. the moral uh, way to order a society And it's not that I uh, agree or disagree, I think. It's that it is such a important concept for people to question because we're fish living in the water of a meritocracy. We were born into a society Mm -hmm. that claimed to be a meritocracy. Um, I don't see it changing anytime super soon. And Mm -hmm. yet, when you think about that versus an aristocracy and how the meritocracy has shifted out, you know, I think, and this is a very rough version, but... You know, 200 years ago, when the Enlightenment is sort of reaching its peak, a meritocracy Mm -hmm. actually was shifting a society from one thing to another. People really were um, moving up through quintiles. But Mm -hmm. in sort of the original David Brooks, Bobos in Paradise, this idea Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, he said, Northwestern marries Penn and Harvard marries Princeton. And the meritocracy was also changing how we married and had children. And we think of IQ as being heritable, um, that eventually 
for a variety of both sort of genetic reasons and social reasons, the meritocracy was always going to become more static. It was going to be less likely that you were going to move between those quintiles at the same rapid speed as when we sort of first have the meritocracy. Mm -hmm. And uh, static social systems don't do very well (laughs) in large groups. And so here we are in a pretty static meritocracy And it's worth questioning whether this, in fact, is a meritocracy, whether it ever was, but certainly whether it is now. And I think you do such a great job, again, challenging the left and right to think differently about that. Yeah. So we all love social mobility, right? We all love the idea of people doing better than their parents did, you know, and then their grandparents did. But if you look at the data, then one pretty shocking thing or maybe surprising uh, thing for maybe many people in your audience, is that if you want to experience the American dream, you have a bigger chance of experiencing that in Denmark today, you know, in socialist Denmark than in in the US. So indeed, social mobility has been going down, down, down in the US. Um, I'm actually a, a pretty big fan of meritocracy if we really practice it. So I would define meritocracy as giving people what they deserve. If you contribute to a lot to society, then sure, fine, right? You deserve your reward. But the problem we have today is what I would call maybe an inverse welfare state where there's a lot of people at the top who don't contribute anything at all, but they somehow do get paid a lot. Um, There's an anthropologist who recently passed away called David Graeber who coined this wonderful scientific concept of the so-called BS job, right? (laughs) People in BS jobs don't do anything of value. They don't contribute anything. And um, we've got some empirical research here that shows that around 25% of people in Western countries think that their own job is what they would call socially useless. Now, you maybe expect that these are mostly people working for the government, right? That's the stereotype. People for the government, I don't know, all these bureaucrats, they're basically wasting their lives and they're wasting our money. But the thing is, if you actually could look at the evidence, it's the other way around. So there are three times as many people in the private sector as in the public sector who say about themselves, you know, about their own jobs, that their own job is is BS. Now, who are these people? The thing is, they're very often very well-educated people. They've got beautiful resumes. They often went to Ivy League universities, you know, to Harvard, to Princeton, you name it. But still, at the end of the day, if you give them a beer or maybe two, They'll admit to you that their job as a corporate lawyer or a banker or a manager or a marketeer doesn't add anything of value to the world. I don't think that's a meritocracy. In a meritocracy, we pay people for what they contribute. You know, if you invent some great new product, if you do some really useful work in healthcare, education, you know, then I think you deserve your reward. But if you're a corporate lawyer that's helping billionaires to evade their taxes, I can't really see how that's contributing to anything. You know, if you're the CEO of Philip Morris, you know, making people addicted to cigarettes, I can't really see what your contribution is there, right? So I think what, what we need to do is to create an economy where we actually reward people for, you know, making things of value. I don't think that's left-wing. I don't think that's right-wing. I think that's just common sense. Jonah Goldberg uh we were talking about this. I was very curious what his sort of thoughts on this were. And I expected him to absolutely disagree with everything Mm -hmm. um, that you thought about this. And instead he absolutely agreed and said, Hmm. basically we meritocracies are the best form that we have. It might not be perfect, but we haven't come up with anything better Two, Mm -hmm. this is not a meritocracy. And three complexity is a subsidy. And so, you know, for instance, the, the college degree he was mentioning. Like the college degree doesn't actually confer the knowledge to do the job that you're getting hired for. Most people still Mm -hmm. learn on the job, the vast, vast majority with maybe some science outliers, right? Organic chemistry Mm -hmm. majors, fine. Um, But that really that diploma is simply a signal that you were able to work through a complex system and come out the other end with, you know, the rings that you were supposed to come out with and that you spent four years with the other types of people who we think are good in that meritocracy, that yeah, quote absolutely. unquote meritocracy. Yeah. Um, and that idea of complexity as a subsidy, you don't phrase it that way. But for instance, you talk about the concept of getting rid of managers in companies, that they're not actually adding a lot of value, that that is adding complexity and friction to a system for the sake of 
adding that friction, making people feel like they're useful. Yeah, absolutely. So if we track back a little bit um, and think about our view of human nature, if you assume that most people deep down are just selfish and that they can't be trusted, then obviously what you need is management and bureaucracy, right? You need layers and layers of managers and controllers and people who are basically making sure that all those lazy people actually do their work. Um, if you turn it around and if you believe that, well, actually, maybe most people are pretty decent and can be trusted and want to contribute to the greater good, then maybe we don't, don't need all these layers of management and hierarchy and bureaucracy, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what my point here is, is that what we assume in other people is often a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you, as a CEO of a big company, if you assume that most of your employees are just lazy and selfish, then you're going to create the kind of people that your theory presupposes. If you turn it around, you can elicit something completely different out of your employees. So I've got one example in my book um, about the most successful healthcare organization that we have here in Europe. It's called Burtzorg. It's got around 50,000 employees and zero managers. Uh, they all work in self-directed teams, uh, deliver high quality healthcare at a cheaper cost than the competitors. Um, and uh, yeah, it's basically uh, very uncomfortable for many of the other you know, organization and companies because they, yeah, they're cheaper, they're better, and they even give their employees a higher salary. So they show that if you just move to a different view of, of who we are and who we could be as humans, uh, you can create quite different societies. And again, is, you know, to go back to my earlier point, is this left wing? Is this right wing? I don't know. It's, it's both. We got to move beyond that. And uh, I think the, if someone just reads sort of the review of your book, sort of the top line, uh, humans are not selfish. The Hobbesian view is incorrect. Far mm -hmm. closer to a Rousseau, you know, humans are uh, helpful. They want to be cooperative. It's a pushback. It just like flows from people's mouths. I would assume that like the Nazis are the number one thing you hear about. You address that literally part two of your book after Auschwitz, in case anyone is mm -hmm. confused about whether you're going to address mm -hmm. that. But I actually thought in part three was um, in some ways far more compelling is the wrong word, um, indicting the, mm -hmm. the empathy problem mm -hmm. that a lot of the times, okay, fine, you might have specific Hitlers out there. But when we think about most people doing bad things, this could actually be sort of the miswiring of the same empathy and um, helpfulness that produces really good things. And I'm curious mm -hmm. if you can take on the critics who say, how can you possibly think all humans are wired to be good when we have the last century? Sure, sure. So one of the most interesting new theories in science, I think, is, is called self-domestication theory. It's a theory from evolutionary biologists. And what they've been arguing for the past couple of years at, is that we humans are a domesticated primate. Uh, maybe this requires a bit of explanation. Uh, I think we all know what domesticated animals are, right? We've got cows, we've got goats, sheep, uh, dogs, and these animals have been selected for tameness for a very long time, you know, for centuries, for millennia. And um, what happens if you domesticate an animal is that a certain list of traits starts to emerge. Charles Darwin in the 19th century already knew this. So what you see is that domesticated animals, they've got thinner bones, they've got uh, smaller brains, they've got floppy ears, white spots in their fur, etc. And there are also, also certain genetic changes that you can see in the genome of um, domesticated animals. Um, so that's what we call domestic, uh, domestication syndrome. The funny thing is that if you look at humans, we seem to be domesticated as well. So we also have thinner bones compared to our ancestors. We also have smaller brains compared to our ancestors. You know, Neanderthals actually had bigger brains. In, in some ways, you could argue they were actually smarter than us. Um, but then the question is, who domesticated us? Who did it? And the answer is, we did it to ourselves. So there's one evolutionary biologist, Brian Hare, who calls this survival of the friendliest. And this really means what you think it means. It means that for millennia, it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. 
um, in prehistory, in the state of nature, when we still lived as nomadic and gatherers, friendliness was an adaptive trait. It helped you to survive. You needed friends if you wanted to survive. If you were, you know, a narcissistic prick, uh, you wouldn't last for long. <laughs> That's basically what society was like back then. You really relied on your friends, especially during tough times. You know, in the Ice Age, um, that's what you needed. And we've got beautiful descriptions in the ethnographic literature, you know, of nomadic hunter-gatherers who lived in the 19th century or the 20th century, of how people in such societies deal with arrogant leaders. They use the power of shame mainly to keep them in control. Uh, one of the most striking facts that I discovered about humans during my research was that we are pretty much the only animal in the whole animal kingdom with the ability to blush. We involuntarily give away our feelings to other members of our species in order to establish trust, which is fantastic, right? If you think about it. Um, and blushing that, is a shame response usually. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we just do it even if we don't want to. It's just our body that does it. And it, this is one of those things that has helped us to survive. It's also one of those things that makes you wonder about some of our leaders, right? If, you're, if you can't imagine your leaders blushing anymore, you know, your manager or your political leader, then maybe something has gone wrong there. I mean, the short summary of my book would be most people are pretty decent, but power corrupts. Power is a very dangerous drug. Now, the other side of the self-domestication thesis is that we humans desperately want to be liked. We desperately want to be part of a group. So we're incredibly tribal. And we mainly care about those who are close to us, our friends, our family members, those who look like us, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and sometimes the danger here is that this empathy um, makes us blind towards the suffering of others. Um, so there's a psychologist called Paul Bloom, who's written a beautiful book about this. Um, the book is actually called Against Empathy. Um, and in the book, he argues that empathy works as a spotlight, as a searchlight. As you focus on those that you really care about, um, the rest of the world fades back into the dark uh, background and you start stereotyping or sometimes even dehumanizing other people and you start to believe very silly things about them. I mean, this is basically what happens in the modern media environment, right? That we start to assume that those other people are all evil and bad. Um, and I'm not saying that evil people don't exist. Um, I mean, we've probably all seen uh, the Batman movies and uh, we remember the Joker, right? So I think the Joker Taken probably straight exists. from history. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there are people novel. who are really like the Joker uh, and who just enjoy um, seeing others suffer, but they're very, very rare. The vast majority of people is not like that and just wants to wants to be like, wants to be part of a group, wants to contribute something. Um, but uh, if we rely too much on, our, on this empathy, on this searchlight, then we can become blind to the perspective of others. And I think we see that in two fascinating ways right now. One, the wanting to belong, I think, is what contributes to the mob mentality that we see on social media, where everyone mm. gangs up on a single person who is judged to have said something or thought something incorrectly. And it's people enjoy being part of that mob. And it takes mm. a while for um, the sort of nonconformist to say, actually, that's not what happened. That's not even what the person said. Or, my God, is the punishment fitting the crime here? Okay, they said something mm -hmm. you didn't like, but should we ruin their lives and cast them out? And, and that that is part of the symptom of what you're talking about. But also, the idea of wanting so badly to belong to your group means that you're very willing to help your group. If your group says we're going out this way, then you're like, ah, yes, I'll go that way. I'll help clear brush on the way. Um, this is our strategy together and I need to help my team members. But what if your team has decided to wipe out another group to exterminate the Jews? You're still going to be programmed to help your team. Yeah. And so yeah, you think you're absolutely. doing something, you're being helpful. When, if you back up, you're causing an enormous, you know, genocide. Yeah, yeah. So during the Second World War, Americans and British psychologists were wondering why were the Germans still fighting so hard in 1944 and 1945 when it was pretty clear they were going to lose the war. Uh, and somehow they were still fighting like fanatics. The German army was actually the most effective army that the world has ever seen. You know, on average, they 
they caused 50% more casualties than the Allied did. And um, at the time, people assumed that they had just been brainwashed, right? That they were just very fanatical Nazis and that that was why they were fighting. Uh, but then a small group of psychologists started interviewing prisoners of war and they discovered that that was actually completely wrong. The vast majority of these German soldiers were fighting for what they called Kameradschaft, comradeship, friendship. You know, these were bands of brothers. Uh, I mean, many of us will have seen the series, the HBO series, Bands of Brothers. You could have made a similar series, you know, following a German platoon uh, or a German company. Um, not as popular in the US, probably. It would not have been very popular, <laughs> sure. But I mean, the kind of sacrifice would have been quite similar. Actually, uh, I think in one of the last episodes, this is one of the messages that the, the makers of the series tried to get across. When you have the speech of a German general uh, speaking to a German company, uh, and you, you're like, oh, it was just pretty similar, you know, on the other side. Um, and this is something you see again and again in history. Uh, sometimes there are beautiful moments, for example, in the First World War, uh, you know, at Christmas, when the soldiers stop fighting and they basically realize, hey, the guys on the other side in their trenches, they're, they're pretty similar to us. You know, they're singing basically the same songs, maybe in a different language, but we can just have a good time together. And there are some historians who argue that this is always a risk during times of war. There's always sort of peace that is you know, slumbering below the surface and can always break out. And during the First World War, this was a real problem. Um, and what they, what they had to do, you know, the generals at the top is to, um, well, for example, use artillery again and again, uh, you know, which is a kind of violence that is obviously much easier. You know, you push a button, kill a lot of people far away um, to basically make sure that these outbreaks of peace were not happening uh, all the time. And in fact, we've moved to even more remote war now, arguably. Um, yeah, yeah. Although fascinating. Yeah. Distance, distance is really uh, the essence, I think, of human violence, uh, both psychological and physical distance. So as I said, it's much easier to kill someone with an artillery device uh, or if you bomb people, you know, with a drone or with a, from a plane or something like that. Uh, but it's also psychological distance. So some people may ask about the genocide in Rwanda. You know, how is that possible? It was very close, close up physical killing, but it didn't just happen instantly. You know, it was months or even years of dehumanization that, that happened before that, in which people learn to look at other people and not see people, but animals, beasts, or even monsters. So that's really essential to, um, to the psychology of violence. We humans, this is interesting. Not many people know this, but we humans find it very, very difficult to be violent. Actually, most of us can't do it. Um, this was discovered again during the Second World War when the American military found out that only 15 to 25% of soldiers who had just been drafted were actually firing their guns. Most couldn't do it. You know, these were guys just, you know, they, they, they were there just on the battlefield and they couldn't do it. You really need a lot of training and conditioning before you can start pulling the trigger. Uh, so yes, it is possible to do that. It happened during the Vietnam War, but then many soldiers paid a price. We've got an enormous amount of psychological evidence that soldiers who kill in war are much more likely to develop PTSD, to be traumatized, which suggests to me that, you know, this is not exactly what we've evolved to do or what we're born to do. We are capable of it. Don't get me wrong. We are one of the cruelest species in the animal kingdom in some circumstances. But um, if you compare it to other things that we do enjoy like eating or, you know, sex or whatever. I mean, that's pretty good for the species and it doesn't traumatize us. Uh, you know, if it's, uh, if we do it in the right way, at least. Um, and that's very different with violence. So there's parts of the book that I did struggle with. Um, and most of it was the, the sciencey aspects. So mm -hmm. in a lot of the book, you take, um, sociology studies, psychology studies, et cetera, the famous ones, right? The, the Milgram shock test, the Stanford prison test, and show how actually um, the test itself, the experiment itself was not scientifically done at all. There's been replication problem. And I was then surprised when you were then citing other studies 
that I think have also had some of that replication crisis because basically the entire field of this type of human experimenting um, and not just human experimenting, actually, interestingly, but there is a replication crisis going on mm-hmm. very much in the soft sciences. And I was curious, um, you know, in the in the one you just mentioned, that Marshall study mm-hmm. on the not shooting. I mean, plenty of people have said that that has real problems with it. Um, mm-hmm. um, what was the other one that I... Oh, the Pygmalion effect mm-hmm. study. Mm-hmm. Plenty have said that, in fact... Um, you know, that has had a replication process. So you were so skeptical of the sort of humans are selfish, evil, dorkian, Hobbesian beings, Mm -hmm. but it felt like less skeptical of the studies that came out the way you wanted. And yet I love the way you wrote the book where you went in questioning without sort of a thesis, like the book is written so perfectly in that sense, but I didn't I, in the end, didn't feel that balance. Hmm, hmm. So we all struggle with our confirmation bias. We all want to believe what we already believe. And we look for the evidence that backs up our views. And obviously, this is something I struggle with as well as I was writing the book. So what I tried to do is to defend myself against this tendency in a couple of ways. Um, I always looked for meta-analyses. So meta-analyses are basically studies of studies. Sometimes you've got like one study that makes a big splash in the media. And then a couple of years later, it's like, oh, sorry, that was actually false. It doesn't replicate. And we found something else. Um, you can really um, defend yourself again uh, against this with, with using these meta-analyses. That often means that, that your insights are less surprising. So, for example, I've got this chapter about contact theory. And contact theory basically means that if people meet each other, preferably physically. They do things together. They often start liking one another. Uh, So contact is the best medicine we have against hate and racism and prejudice. Now you may say, well, do we need a a PhD? You know, (laughs) that seems like so obvious. Do we even need research to prove that? But the thing is, everything is obvious once you know the answer. And we've got decades of research into contact theory. We've got hundreds of studies. um, And that's why I prefer prefer to rely on those kind of research traditions. Um, in the case of uh, the soldiers not shooting, you're absolutely right that, you know, the initial finding by um, Samuel Marshall, the American uh, historian uh, and uh, colonel, um, was controversial, right? He was, a, he was a man of anecdotes, great anecdotes, but it wasn't really clear if his statistical uh, work was all that rig- rigorous. I was in the end convinced because I read the works of others, uh, specifically the standard work by Randall Collins on violence, who's done um, quite some research uh, based on photographs of, of um, combat situation where he saw the same phenomenon. So, I mean, ba- other people may judge differently, but uh, I spent, you know, quite a lot of time um, uh, researching this. And maybe... What's most convincing is that the American military took these findings very, very seriously. So they, they, they radically changed the training of their soldiers uh, because of these insights. Because obviously, if you want to have an ex- effective army, you want to have soldiers who actually pull the trigger. Um, so training has been transformed. And that, uh, basically all modern armies uh, do that today. I actually thought one of the most, uh, you show your work in so many ways in writing this um, in a way that I don't know of any other author who shows their work quite so much. And it made it a really fun read for someone like me who, yeah, I've read Gladwell. I've read, you know, uh, sort of the, um, I don't know what you call them, like pop study books. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. And having someone say, and then I read this analysis and then this one, and actually this one questioned it, but then this one confirmed it. it. In some ways you could take chunks of this book and it would just be an interesting indictment of the last sort of hundred years of social studies. Um, because yeah, this stuff is hard. And as you point out again and again, the way to make headlines and make your career is a shocking finding. And the way to not become famous is a nuanced finding (laughs) and one that feels, um, you know, kind of like something we already knew and it doesn't make for like, Law and Order episodes or bad Batman stuff. I mean, we are drawn to pretty dark stuff. I mean, Game of Thrones is a dark show. 
Yellowstone is a dark show. Um, but your thesis We love is, those stories. We love <laughs> right? them. Yeah. And so when we see studies that sort of validate that side of ourselves, uh, we're, it makes huge headlines. I mean, Milgram's famous. Um, the Stanford experiment, incredibly famous, and have been really debunked at this point, as yeah. has the marshmallow test for children. And yet you will hear parents all the time talk about the marshmallow test for their children. Yeah. I think the Stanford prison experiment is probably the most shocking one because this is the most famous experiment we have in all psychology. It's still in all of the textbooks. And I don't know. It's it's not even like that. He, yeah, it's it's like a complete and total hoax. It was a setup. <laughs> it was a lie. So the, the standard work about this experiment was published a couple of years ago in French for some reason. I don't know why, but because in France, no one, very few people even know about this experiment. Um, but uh, it's the title is um, the story, the history of a lie. Um, so for, for those who don't know, the Stanford prison experiment was this time in the 70s when Philip Zimbardo, who's still one of the most famous psychologists out there, uh, had this um, experiment in which he had a group of 24 students and he divided them up. 12 uh, were turned into guards and 12 into prisoners. He put them in a fake prison in the basement of Stanford University and said, okay, let the show begin and let's, we'll just study what happens. And the story that's always been told in documentaries, there's a, there's a big feature film about it, I think as well, um, is that these guards very quickly turn into monsters. Uh, initially, they were these pacifistic hippies, but then three, four days later, they, they were sadistic, you know, uh, beasts who were enjoying torturing uh, the prisoners. Now, all of that is a lie. <laughs> That's basically what it is. We now know that these guards were specifically instructed by Philip Zimbardo to behave in a really nasty way. Many of them didn't want to do it. Then he said, well, you got to do it because we need these results for our study. And then we can go to the press <laughs> uh -huh. and say, look, prisons are horrible environments. We need to abolish all prisons. Um, so that's the story of the Stanford prison experiment, but somehow this became the most famous experiment in the history of psychology. You do such a great job talking, <laughs> indicting again, just this concept where you see some headline in the news, some study has proven X, uh, you know, salt is good for you. Salt is bad for you. Have wine, don't have wine, dark chocolate, mm -hmm. you know, whatever that thing <laughs> may be that you want to grab onto, just think of Rucker in the back of your head saying, really, <laughs> is it? Maybe not. Um, so, okay, but here's another. As I was reading, especially talking about current isolated nomadic tribes that we study, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then um, trying to make larger uh, guesses about what it was like 10,000 mm -hmm. years ago in a nomadic tribe, why do you think, and you I'm using here like the scientific community that you were drawing from, that the current nomadic tribes are representative because they're the ones who sort of stayed nomadic, whereas, you know, the Frisians or the Huns or all these other nomadic tribes stopped being nomadic. Maybe there was something intrinsically different about a lot of the nomadic tribes that don't exist. And that, sure, the nomadic tribes that exist now happen to be uh, friendly, cooperative, shame-based societies, things that we can't really know about 10,000-year-ago nomadic tribes. You're absolutely right. So in a way, we don't know. And we can never know for sure what it was like to live 50,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago. We don't know. I try to paint a picture in my book based on the latest evidence we have from both anthropology, uh, archaeology, and biology. And why I think it's a convincing picture is because there's convergence, right? The evidence from archaeology is in line with the evidence from anthropology and in line with the evidence from biology. Um, so I mentioned the self-domestication thesis. We really see in the archeological record that people um, are being domesticated as the millennia go by, that they're domesticating themselves. So if you, for example, look at a skull of a human 50,000 years ago and compare it to a skull 40,000 years ago, 30, 20,000 years ago, you see, literally, and people should look at pictures of this, uh, of this to, to be convinced, you literally see that we start to look nicer, 
<laughs> so <laughs> the skull of humans, 50,000 years, we looked rough. <laughs> and and you, you, you just see the domestication happening in, in, in real time there. Um, I think probably arche- the archaeological evidence is most convincing. There's been a lot of debate about the origins of warfare. And for a long time, people like Steven Pinker, for example, have argued that warfare goes back to the very, very beginning of our history. And that back in the state of nature, as the British philosopher Thomas Hobbes argued, we were engaging in a war of all against all. That supposedly nomadic hunter-gatherer tribes were very violent. The problem with that thesis is that we should see it in the archaeological record, right? We should have found way more skeletons with evidence of physical, you know, violence. But we haven't found that. There's almost nothing. If you then look at cave paintings, for example, if there was really a war of all against all going on back then, you would suspect that some painter, you know, some Picasso of prehistory would have painted a Guernica of prehistory, right? But we found nothing, literally nothing. It's only after the invention of agriculture, when people became sedentary, that you start to find these cave paintings. And actually, then we find quite a, quite a lot of them. Um, so again, I think the evidence is, is pretty suggestive there. I'm not 100% certain, you know, I'm open to changing my mind and, and it's, Until it's a really a time hard... machine, I suppose that we'll have sure, to accept sure. that, but okay. But we have nomadic tribes 1500 years ago that are mm-hmm. incredibly violent. Mm-hmm. Um, now you're right that it's when post other agricultural societies have popped up, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know, nomadic tribes, you know, in the zero to 600 ADs, raids were incredibly, that, that was part of life. You go raid the other nomadic tribe and try to take some of their stuff. Um, obviously like Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, those are nomadic tribes that just were ruthless. I mean, you know, if you didn't immediately uh, uh, surrender, acknowledge, they would burn the town with everyone in it, just kill every single person. Now you're right, it was a nomadic versus a non-nomadic, but why would agriculture change that in your theory? Hmm. So agriculture has actually been called the biggest mistake in all of human history. Oh, totally, by, misery. By, I mean, <laughs> you want to talk about archeological evidence, just humans get miserable in every way post-agriculture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so basically our diet, completely deteriorates. We have to, you know, engage in backbreaking work seven days a week. Um, and um, these hierarchies start to arise. As I mentioned, um, there's a lot of evidence that nomadic and together tribes before the invention of agriculture were much more egalitarian. But then over and over again, you see so much more hierarchy, you know, religious hierarchies, military hierarchies, um, you name it. Um, there's also people who've been arguing that, you know, this whole thing called the patriarchy, which has been dominant in pretty much every single society, doesn't really matter, you know, if it's been Christian or, uh, you know, Islamic or whatever. In pretty much every single society throughout world history, it's been the men who've been in charge. You know, it's, what we're doing right now uh, is uh, an extraordinary experiment, you know, uh, with the rise of uh, the women's movement since the 19th century. That's really been the exception throughout history. And there's a lot of evidence that this is connected to, to agriculture because you see it in the same societies happening over and over and over again. Um, By the way, fascinatingly, again, we think of ourselves as feminists because we recognize the inherent value of women, but step out to that big picture as we move away from physical labor and into an information knowledge-based economy, women become a lot more valuable than we were when it was really, you know, important to see what would come out in the field and plowing. So in the long term, it's very possible 500 years from now, they'll say, yeah, women started getting rights when they started being more valuable in the economy aside from producing children. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's also really connected to, um, um, the invention of private property. I mean, private property did exist among nomadic hunter-gatherers, but obviously if you're moving around, you can't own all that much. And um, this whole notion that you own something was probably also an invention of more agricultural and sedentary societies where you stay in one place and you can start accumulating resources. Now then, um, obviously when, you, when you're on your deathbed, 
many people want to make sure that their kids get their inheritance. Then you want to be really sure that your kids are actually your kids. So there's a case to be made that when societies become sedentary and agricultural, that men start to get obsessed about, you know, uh, the purity of their women and to make sure that they didn't sleep with, with other guys. Um, and this obviously doesn't go the other way around uh, because, you know, women know who they've slept with. Um, but men can never be certain uh, if it's really their child. So that is one case that anthropologists make that all these societies, and again, you see it all, all over the globe, this obsession that many men throughout history have had with basically controlling the fertility of women is also really, really dominant in agricultural society. And that's why, for example, the invention of the birth control pill was so revolutionary in the middle of the 20th century. You know, for the first time in all of women, uh, world history, women could take control of their own fertility. Um, I think that's still uh, a massively underappreciated revolution. So how do we explain Attila the Hun? How do we explain that? <laughs> Big question. Well, it's this is obviously much later um, it is. in in world history, and this is already when we have all kinds of modern phenomena. You know, modern armies with domesticated horses. Um, there are all these sedentary societies stirrups, all around. My favorite military so, technology. <laughs> yeah, the yeah, underestimated yeah. So, stirrup. Yeah, so I don't think that tells us anything about got it. You know, deep prehistory. Okay. I want to get to the very end of your book, which mm-hmm. again, like you could just read the end of this book. And in fact, if you read the whole book and don't read the end of the book, I think you're really missing out. Um, because there's just some like very concentrated, smart stuff here. One of which is the empathy versus compassion. You are also pretty anti-empathy. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So explain why compassion is better than empathy. Yeah, psychologists argue that even though empathy helps us to focus on this particular person or this particular group, and the alternative is compassion that really helps you to zoom out. And there's some evidence that these are distinct processes in the brain. Uh, So master meditators, for example, uh, they're able to, uh, you know, sit in a brain scanner and then the researcher asks, okay, now feel empathy for this and now feel compassion. And you can see different uh, regions of the brain light up. Um, I think one of the great things about compassion is that it doesn't drain you uh, compared to empathy. Uh, Empathy often makes us really, really, really tired, right? You feel what the other person is feeling and it is overwhelming. But the thing is, you don't have to feel what the other person is feeling. We know this as parents, for example, I, I recently became a father and I really don't want to feel what my daughter is feeling, you know, uh, when she's, I don't know, she's just one year old and sometimes she's like, I don't know, crying about, I don't know what she's crying about. Sure. I want to comfort her. I want to be compassionate, but really stepping into her shoes. I don't think that would be wise, right? When your child is afraid of the dark, you want to, don't want to sit in the corner together with your child. Like, yeah, it is really scary here, right? You don't, that's not what you want to do. You do want to recognize someone else's anxiety or suffering um, and sure, provide love and care and you name it, um, but do, you don't actually want to feel the same feelings. Now that's, that's compassion. Rule number seven for Rucker Bregman's mm-hmm. uh, world, avoid <laughs> the news. A bit of a statement mm-hmm. against interest for this podcast, but actually <laughs> it's something that we talk a lot about. Um, mm-hmm. News can be incredibly toxic and you make the point broader than social media. I think everyone's sort of mm-hmm. sick of hearing social media is bad for you. People are either using mm-hmm. it or not. But you actually are saying like, no, like the news itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole thing. Um, <laughs> a lot of people have, have been complaining about the problem of fake news uh, and the Russians and blah, blah, blah. To be honest, I think that's a sideshow. I, I really think the news itself is what's poisoning our societies. And I do want to make a distinction here between the news on the one hand and journalism on the other hand. I'm a big fan of constructive journalism that helps us to zoom out and focus on the real big issues in the world. Sometimes uh, that's positive. We might think of this as like long form writing, like Wired Magazine has, you know, a 10 page piece on whatever, whatever. That's Mm -hmm. not, that's journalism more than it is news. It's not breaking it's not yeah, based maybe, on something maybe. happening today. It could also be, I mean, it could also be like a single graph, 
that shows you the decline in extreme poverty or the decline in child mortality, which has been, you know, pretty extraordinary in the last 30 years. Most people don't know this. If you ask people around the world, has the, has the state of the world been improving or deteriorating? The vast majority of people everywhere, I think, says things are getting worse and that everything is going downhill. Then you look at the actual evidence and you see that extreme poverty has declined by 50%, that uh, child mortality has declined by 50% since the 1980s. You know, hunger has been going down. Um, a lot of people worry about climate change. I worry incredibly about climate change, but actually in the last 100 years, the number of victims of natural disasters has steeply declined by more than 90% because we're way better at protecting ourselves. So yes, the world is in a bad state, but yes, the world is also getting better. And yes, we could do way better than we're doing right now. We should do way better than we're doing right now. So all these things are true. And I think that just good constructive journalism, um, yeah, helps us to look at the bigger picture. And the news really does the opposite. And, and oh, by the way, one of the nasty side effects also of the news is that uh, it makes you cynical. There's an enormous amount ev of evidence from psychology uh, that it causes the so-called mean world syndrome. People who follow a lot of the news become more depressed, become more cynical, and it doesn't do anything for you, right? If you read a lot uh, about the you know disasters here or poverty there or what those nasty Democrats or nasty Republicans have been doing, it doesn't make you a better person. You know you haven't contributed anything. Awareness is completely overrated. Um, awareness is sometimes maybe a beginning, you know. A good start, but actually doing things is so much more important. What is your media diet? Huh, uh, I guess mostly books. <laughs> <laughs> so you are following your own advice. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't, I, I hardly follow the news. Um, I, I sometimes have that problem in interviews that people say, oh, what do you think about this? Like, what? It was huge. I'm like, what? I didn't miss it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and your life, you feel, is no worse for that. No, I mean, it's, we often don't even, because you seem like a pretty happy person in your book. So if that's the key, that's probably <laughs> a good thing to share. Sure, sure. We often don't even want to read yesterday's newspaper. And then I'm wondering how worthless must the information be in the newspaper if you don't want to read it a day later, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, rule number eight, don't punch Nazis. I actually, I mean, it's like a funny title, but I think a lot of people, again, you think of sort of social media, they want mm -hmm. to go find the people who are bad on the internet and punish them. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it just doesn't work. Uh, and it's ob obviously exactly what they want, what they need, right? Because it gives them the image of being a victim and it helps them to recruit more Nazis, <laughs> right? So um, people may think that turning the other cheek is weak, and silly and idealistic and naive. And to be honest, I think it's actually often pretty rational. Uh, it's very difficult. It requires an enormous amount of self-control, but it often produces way better results. I've got one chapter in the book about the criminal justice system in Norway, which is pretty much the opposite of the American criminal justice system. So American prisons are basically best described as universities for crime. Uh, if you look at the recidivism rate, the chance that someone will commit another crime, um, you know, um, American universities are the best in the world. They really teach people to be criminals. <laughs> uh, so basically as a taxpayer, you pay an enormous amount of money to create more criminals. Um, in Norway, they have the opposite. So there's one prison called Bastoy to the south of Oslo that has the lowest rec recidivism rate in the world. The lowest chance that people who get out of the prison will commit another crime. And how did they do it? Well, um, they've created a kind of prison that is completely counterintuitive where these prisoners get the freedom to decide for themselves how they want to spend their days, you know, engage in a lot of education. Um, there's, there's even a ski slope. I think there's a cinema, there's a, there's a band, uh, the Bastoy blues band. They've got their own, uh, studio and their own record. It's called criminal records, uh, you know, to make their music. So in every single way you think this is outrageous. How could you, uh, I mean, this is, how could you build a prison like that? But then you look at the actual evidence and you see this is the most effective prison in the world. And it's a really good use of taxpayer money. Um, because actually people who go to this prison have a 50% increased chance of being employed when they get out. 
Um, it's really hard. I recognize that. So turning the other cheek is really hard. But then again, is, isn't that what civilization sometimes is about? About doing the really hard thing? I'm not saying you should always turn the other cheek. I'm not saying we should turn the other cheek towards Vladimir Putin right now. Actually, I believe the opposite. So this is not some, some kind of grand ideology that I have that you should do it all the time. But please look at the evidence, right? Let the numbers speak for themselves. Experiment and, and do what works. I really, I have to tell you, I picked this book because I thought it was a book that we could like kind of disagree with because I thought like so many books, you would take the extreme version of your own thoughts in all cases, because that's what, again, that's what sells, right? In all cases, this, and I'll make the most extreme case for this. And instead you turn out to be this very rational, realistic person. Um, and you pride yourself, I think on the realism versus cynicism and you know, not all rules apply in every single situation. That would be very easy, but it's not very realistic. Uh, and I, that's what I ended up finding really fascinating about the book, really compelling about the book. I'm curious, what does the world look like um, in, you know, pick a couple areas that would be different. For instance, are you, you know, still as enamored with universal basic income? Even, you know, part of the problem, I think, is, of course, you get rid of the social safety net, everyone gets money, that would make everyone on the left and right happy, except, okay, person A does blow all their money on something not worthwhile, the big screen TV, and then they get sick. And now they can't pay for their health care or they don't have enough money for food. We're not going to let that person starve or die in the street. So we are still going to need to have those social safety nets. And once person B sees that person A was still taken care of, even though, you know, and so it, that's always the problem with UBI. Um, but it goes against your philosophy here of like, nope, trust the humans. They are, they are good. They want to do good. They want to be helpful. How, how are we supposed to deal with that one bad apple can be very contagious, even if 99 good apples are there? Yeah. The question we got to ask ourselves is, do we want to write laws and legislation and procedures and you name it for the 99% or for the 1%? I think you just have to... Um, basically deal with that there's a bit of collateral damage here and there, and you just got to accept that some people will waste their money. Sure, it happens. But just look at what the vast majority of people do with something. I often like to describe basic income as venture capital for the people. Um, the rich are very used to having venture capital, and we all know that innovation is something that arises when people have the freedom to experiment, to try new things, to you know, move to a new job, start a new company, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that just uh, way more people deserve that. And sure, there's going to be mistakes, but that's what what's innovation is all about. Um, the other thing I would say is that I'm a pretty old-fashioned social democrat. So um, I'm in favor of high-quality public education. I'm in favor of high-quality public health care. And on top of that, I would, uh, I would love to have a guaranteed basic income. I think that in the end, that's cheaper for everyone. Um, again, if I compare... Healthcare systems across the globe. What I see in the US is the most expensive healthcare system humanity has ever created. And at the same time, life expectancy is going down, which is quite an achievement. You know, you spend so much money and people are dying earlier. I mean, my hat's off to that. <laughs> um, You're welcome. But yeah. And I don't know. I think that basically every other civilized country in the world, whether it's Canada or the UK or all the other European countries have just different ways of providing public health care to everyone. I don't know. I don't think that should be up for discussion, to be honest. Uh, it's, it's so clear that what you've got right now is, is a disaster. Um, and um, yeah, and it's really expensive. People are, are paying a lot of hidden taxes there, but they're just paying it, you know, via their employer to the insurance companies. But that's a tax as well. You know, who cares if you pay to in Europe to the government or in America to the in, to the insurance company, right? It's it's also it's it's you can't spend it on 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 other on other stuff, right? So um, yeah, that's the, that's the world I want to live in. I often call myself um, um, someone who thinks that the state should think like an anarchist. I do think that the state should provide some basic services, as I said, public education, healthcare, guaranteed basic income. But then give people the freedom to decide for themselves how they want to organize all those kind of things. 
So for example, the healthcare organization that I mentioned, Buurtzorg, is a pretty anarchistic organization. Yes, they're publicly funded, but then after the funding, the government gets out of the way. Sure, it does a couple of checks, like if they're totally wasting the money, then sure, uh, then you need uh, the inspection to step in. Um, but you don't need all this government regulation for everything, right? You, you can actually trust people. Will you describe what you were thinking going into Davos? Were you surprised by the reaction? Tell, tell the audience about your Davos experience. Okay, well, this, this was a once-in-a-lifetime experience because they haven't invited me afterwards. wonder why. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the audience is about to find out why. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So Davos is this place in the world every year where the rich and powerful meet to discuss the world's biggest problems. Uh, I don't know, inequality, climate change, loss of biodiversity, blah, blah, blah. Um, and um, I was invited to talk about my previous book, Utopia for Realists. I guess they wanted me to say something about basic income or something like that. But I got really frustrated as I, uh, uh, you know, attended a couple of panels and no one was talking about the elephant in the room. As you know, you know, many of them are total hypocrites. They fly in with their private yets and then they start complaining about climate change. Um, they, they blather on about, uh, inequality and they don't talk about their own corrupt business models and their tax avoidance and their tax evasion. Um, I mean, in the US, um, relatively speaking, the rich are, are paying way less in tax than, than the poor and, and people with um, uh, more average incomes. Um, so yeah, I just thought I'd say something about that hypocrisy and that maybe they got to st stop talking about all their BS philanthropy and maybe start talking about taxes, taxes, taxes. Um, some people see that as a really, I don't know, socialist message or whatever. I always point, point them towards history. If you look at the period from the 1950s to the 1970s, we had relatively high taxes for the rich, you know, especially on wealth and you know, high marginal top taxes for the, for the very richest. And we had the most innovation we ever had. We had the biggest rates, of, highest rates of economic growth. You know, actually, there was a lot more innovation back then than there's now. So um, I think these things can perfectly well work together. I'm a big fan of capitalism. It's just something that needs to be tamed. Um, and especially if you have all these, well, basically oligarchs who are contributing nothing, who, who are basically rent-seeking um, and, and not actually creating something of value for the rest of us, then I, I say text the hell out of them. Complexity is a subsidy. You know, when I was a teenager, I'm a Scorpio, and you sort of have, you know, you read, but there was an internet, right? So like <laughs> Scorpios are vengeful and blah, blah, blah. So I thought I needed to be like a vengeful, untrusting person. And I had this epiphany um, in my 20s that like, I wasn't very good at it, frankly. And I would get really frustrated when I wasn't good at something and like being vengeful and mistrusting didn't work because I don't have a very good long-term memory. And so I would forget the wrongs <laughs> that had been done to me. And I wasn't very happy. Uh, and, and it was just like the cycle I would forget then I'd be unhappy that I wasn't being good at being vengeful. And, um, huh. my epiphany was something like, um, just trust everyone and be the exact opposite of sort of what the Scorpio stereotype was mm -hmm. never seek revenge. Now, if mm -hmm. someone, um, repeatedly betrays your trust, misuses you in some way, you stop interacting with that person. Yeah, exactly. But you don't do anything about it. That's not a good use of your time. And you have this great example in the book that I want to end on. <laughs> this idea, again, you take it to like the very logical extreme, but I think in this case, it is warranted. Mm -hmm. That perhaps if you've never been fleeced, conned in any way, yeah. perhaps you haven't been trusting enough. Yeah, you should see a therapist. <laughs> uh, if, if you've never been conned, that's, that's a real problem with you. Um, if you look at professional con artists, there are a couple of beautiful books about this. Maria Konnikova has, has written a, um, a really nice book in which she explains how these people do what they do. And they're really, really good at abusing our trust. Um, the good news is they're very rare, but these people are out there, you know, just pathological liars. And we are, um, we find it very hard to defend ourselves against them because we are optimized uh, for trust. We've evolved to trust one another. We blush, we look into each other's eyes, 
Um, that's just the secret of, secret of our success as humans is that we very easily trust one another. And that has enabled us to cooperate on a skill that no other animal in the animal kingdom has ever been able to do. Um, so yeah, I see it as collateral damage, just something that you have to accept. You'll be conned a couple of times in, in your life. It has happened to me, I think two or three times. I, I always felt very silly afterwards. Um, but after writing this book, now I feel a little bit of pride uh, that actually, hey, I'm human after all. And this is maybe a price that I should be willing to pay in exchange for living a whole life where I can trust almost all people around me. And speaking of studies, there's actually a study that people who trust more are better at picking out the untrustworthy people than the people who distrust mm. everyone. They don't have any discerning mm. mechanism. Um, mm. Mm. So you're also building a whole muscle that others don't have. And I, I love that as a way to end our discussion on what it means to be human and the good side and all the positives and um, the joy that comes with being human as well. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us. The book is Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman. And um, it has just been a, a joy of a month to, to get to read this book and think about it and talk to our members about it. We will see you next month.